Good evening. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number, if you want to call into the program, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Y'all, listen, we'll get to Kavanaugh here in a minute and, and the Saudi Arabia situation, but I, I just I was reading this article in the AJC and it just blows my mind. And this is, we're... We've reached a point in this country where people say things and probably actually do believe them, and it just boggles the mind that anyone can look at at what goes on around here and think this is so. What I'm talking about is a story in the AJC about the development of the toll lanes on Georgia 400, which in and of itself is a little ridiculous in that Georgia 400 was a toll uh, road and they got rid of the toll and now they want to bring in toll lanes. What the DOT wants to do is they want to put toll lanes on each side of Georgia 400. Those of you stuck on 400 right now, they want a north toll, ba- toll lane and a south toll lane, which is different from uh, the uh, from 75, 575, and, and where you've got a reversible lane. This would not be a reversible lane. My understanding of it is there would be northbound lanes and there would be southbound lanes. Uh, Roswell and Sandy Springs are cool with what the DOT wants. Alpharetta is being persnickety with it. Uh, Alpharetta wants, a ro- you know, that Encore Parkway up there by Top Golf. It, it's it's a beautiful road and bridge, uh, and now Alpharetta wants to to put um, turn lanes off of that an interchange there, which makes no sense given that bridge. And as the uh, Russell McMurray from the from GDOT points out, he's a commissioner, that they've never brought this up in the past, and suddenly it's like Alpharetta's just scrambling to add additional stuff to, to cause all sorts of problems to the project, which I know Alpharetta would never say that's what they're doing, but it sure sounds like it. But that's not the crazy part. That's not the crazy part. I, I just, I, I, I hope you're in your car and can ponder this. The Fulton County Schools want the Georgia 400 lanes moved because they're going to come close to Woodland and Dunwoody Springs Elementary Schools in Sandy Springs. The, the, the Fulton County Schools, now keep in mind, Sandy Springs is okay, Roswell is okay, but the Fulton County School System wants the lanes moved. Now, I got to pull up a map. This is something I should have done. Uh, Dunwoody Springs. I have no idea where Dunwoody Springs Elementary School is. Okay. There's okay. So it's, it's just off 400. Let me pull up my satellite here and zoom in. Yeah. Okay. It's just off 400. So the toll lanes would actually come very close to the school. There's, there's a wood, wood bear. There's a trees. There are lots of trees that serve as a nice little barrier between 400 and the school. Y'all, honestly, this is the most ridiculous thing I've read in the newspaper this week. I read the New York Times story on Brett Kavanaugh, which we'll get to. But this is just, just this is the height of absurdity. I'm going to read for you now the paragraph from the, the AJC. <laughs> I'm sorry. I read this and I fell out laughing when I read this paragraph. Fulton School Superintendent Mike Looney previously told the AJC that the district might have to spend up to $10 million because of the toll lane project. Why 
would the Fulton County school system have to spend $10 million because of a toll lane? (laughs) He said, I'm reading again from the AJC. He said, moving lanes closer to campuses makes the schools more susceptible to a shooting or someone driving explosives on the school property. <laughs> uh, listen, I realize we're in the age of school shootings. I realize we're, we're in the age of school shootings. The idea that, that Al-Qaeda is going to load up a bus with C4 and drive down the toll road until they get to the school and explode should be patently absurd to every single person listening right now. He, this again, the, the superintendent of Fulton County School says they're going to have to spend $10 million because of a toll road. Why? Because moving lanes on Georgia 400 closer to campuses makes the schools more susceptible to a shooting or someone driving explosives onto school property. How are they going to drive explosives onto school property from a, from a fixed toll road that has no exit to the school are they just going to drive past and detonate because what's to stop them if they wanted to do that from driving into the school right there's nothing to stop them from doing it right now and yet somehow he's trying to tell the dot you got to move your entire toll road to the west because somebody may load up a bus with explosives and drive it onto school property from an interstate uh, toll lane where there's no way to get out except jumping the curb. I guess if they're going to jump that curve, can't they just jump the existing curb? This is just this is this is ridiculous is what this is. This is just garbage ridiculousness trying to stall a project. I've heard of NIMBY, not in my backyard stuff, but the idea that the Georgia Department of Transportation needs to move an entire interstate plan because someone might put a bomb on a truck and blow up a school from the interstate is actually absurd. It is, and nobody should treat this with a straight face. It is absurd. If someone's going to do it from the, I assure you, they can go into the school right now. In fact, I can pull up on Google Maps right now and zoom into this into the school. And guess what? There is no gate that blocks this school. You can come. I mean, it's just the whole thing is ridiculous. It is. This is this is the most ridiculous argument I have heard about. There are. Listen, Alpharetta has some concerns and I get it. But the idea that someone's going to drive on the toll lane to blow up a school is pretty freaking stupid, if you ask me. Uh, good gracious. That, that's just, th- this is absurd. Who thinks like this? That, that it, it sounds very much like they can't say, well, we don't want it to, we don't want the loss of the woodland cover between, we don't want the loss of the sound barrier that the woods causes. So, hey, let's say someone's going to blow up the school if they build a toll road. That's just absurd. Okay, now, the absurdity of the Kavanaugh situation. We do need to get into this Kavanaugh situation. Uh, Let me first go to Senator Ted Cruz this weekend on one of the Sunday shows. This article this morning, you know, I got to say, they apparently spent 10 months uh, with undercover reporters trying to track down every person that went to school with Justice Kavanaugh 30 years ago. You know, it's an amazing level of reporting trying to just really dig up any dirt they can on the guy. I think that follows up with, with, with the rather shameful circus we saw during the confirmation hearing where, where they took 
allegations. They sat on them. They didn't make them public. They, they revealed them at the 11th hour. And you know what? The Judiciary Committee did what we should have done. We held a hearing. We, in, we invited the principal witness to testify. We heard it. The American people heard it. And at the end of the day, the American people made a judgment that, that the evidence wasn't there. The corroboration wasn't there. And, and I think this article just shows the obsession with the far left, with, with trying to smear yes. Justice Kavanaugh uh, b b by going 30 years back with anonymous sources, uh, it, 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 it really is another sign of ha how nasty and divided the time is today. Yeah, let me let me break this story down for you. And, and listen, I, I realize by the time you've gotten here today, you've probably heard of this ad nauseum, but I do want to review a little bit because I, I frankly am getting tired of some of the 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 people out there who who dial this up to 11 when I don't necessarily think they need to. The New York Times published a story on Sunday by two New York Times reporters. The reporters have written a book called The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, an investigation. Uh, and the book contains a new allegation about Brett Kavanaugh. You know, Deborah Ramirez, the Deborah Ramirez allegations, you should note, the New York Times took a pass on them. The New York Times took a pass on the Deborah Ramirez allegations because she wasn't sure at the time. She spent six days talking to her lawyer, and only thereafter did she decide to come forward. And all of the people she said would be witnesses for her, none of them knew of the incident. The, so the New York Times took a pass on the story. Instead, it was run by Ronan Farrow at, at the height of his post-Weinstein credibility, along with Jane Mayer. And from what I've been told by multiple people, Jane Mayer really ran with the story. Jane, it's relevant that Jane Mayer did this because Jane Mayer in the past, she's a writer for The New Yorker, in the past has lamented she did not do enough to help undermine Clarence Thomas. So very clearly has a political agenda uh, to, to make up for what she thinks was her own lack of action in the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill stuff. This is essentially a repentance for self perceived sin that she pursued this story. Well, Ramirez wouldn't cooperate with the FBI. Ramirez wouldn't cooperate with the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. And the person who claims he had knowledge of the instance actually didn't have knowledge of the instance. He said he heard it from someone. That person was um, interviewed and that person had no knowledge of the situation. No one had any firsthand information. And this is one of the things that the, the New York Times and other media outlets have done very poorly uh, that they would never do with the left. They redefine witness. Witness is someone who saw something. And all the people who are witnesses to the Deborah Ramirez situation are not people who saw anything. They are people who heard that other people saw something. And the people who were named as being the actual eyewitnesses, none of them had any knowledge of the situation. So the Deborah Ramirez situation, she herself didn't remember it at first, and then she wasn't even sure it was Brett Kavanaugh. And then all of the people that she said were eyewitnesses, none of them actually remembered the situation. One guy who is a partisan progressive claims he had knowledge of it, and his knowledge is based on what someone told him, and that person had no knowledge of the situation. So it's really, really striking that there are no eyewitnesses at all. And even Ramirez wasn't sure. Well, now a new person has come forward and claims that pretty much the exact same thing, Kavanaugh exposed himself to her, but very weirdly, it was other people who grabbed Kavanaugh's part and shoved it into the girl's face. So so Kavanaugh himself was assaulted. Um, but this woman doesn't have... I mean, that, that the New York Times ran that story, and they left out the fact that the woman has no memory of the incident. And in fact, the people who supposedly were witnesses 
None of them remember it. None of this woman's friends remember it. This woman told none of her friends about it. No, no one has any recollection of this except one person, a guy named Max Steyer. And over the weekend, the media was running reports on how Max Steyer is an upstanding, honest guy. Do you know who Max Steyer is? Max Steyer was the guy who helped Bill Clinton undermine Monica Lewinsky. When you take him and you take Jane Mayer, what this very much sounds like is a bunch of people who feel guilty for their past help or lack of help in the Clarence Thomas situation and the and the Monica Lewinsky situation, and they're trying to repent for their self-perceived sins by taking out Brett Kavanaugh. But there's also something else at stake here, something bigger than Brett Kavanaugh, and we should discuss that when we come back. This is so timely. My thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring the show. If you haven't used ExpressVPN, it's something you really, really need to consider. Uh, there are so many stories now about people hacking in, observing you when you're in a coffee shop, through Wi-Fi. ExpressVPN doesn't just encrypt your data while you surf the internet on public airport and hotel Wi-Fis. It lets you stream and access content that normally would have been blocked in the country where you might be traveling, for example. With ExpressVPN, you can unblock all your favorite websites and have access Access to the internet just like you would if you were at home, if you're traveling abroad. It makes it fantastic. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer, your phone. Then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect. Voila, you're protected. You don't travel abroad without ExpressVPN. You really shouldn't be in a coffee shop or a hotel with Wi-Fi without ExpressVPN. Uh, it's the fastest VPN you can try. Costs less than $7 a month. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Listen, you want to keep your data secure. You want to protect yourself online. Find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Eric. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Eric for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Eric to learn more. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Oh, let's see. Uh, we did not have a winner for the 95.5 WSB free gas giveaway. That means you'll have a chance to win $700 at 5 o'clock today. Listen at 5. If you're not registered for free gas, go to WSBradio.com. You could get five. You get $700 at 5 o'clock, but you got to go register at WSBradio.com. Okay, uh, let me wrap up this Kavanaugh stuff. And the phone number here as well, if you want to be a part of the program, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. This is actually a, a systemic attack on the Supreme Court by the left. Remember, anything the left doesn't like, they've decided is invalid. And anything that's invalid, they will relitigate until they win. The Electoral College is now invalid. Uh, the Senate is invalid. The Supreme Court is invalid. They they got to pack the court. They got to do all this stuff. Uh, there are two reasons for this. One is a story I didn't get to talk about last week. But uh, there is new sourcing from within the Supreme Court that John Roberts was with the conservatives on the census case and changed his mind at the last minute uh, to avoid perceived political favoritism to the Republicans. And he did so because of the, um, because of the uh, court and the complaints of progressives in the media. He changed his mind. But there's another issue as well that is looming over this entire process we should delve into. Uh, and we'll get into that and take your phone calls when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome back. The phone number, 404-872-0750-1800-WSB-TALK. I am waiting for Senator Chuck Grassley to take to the floor of the Senate 
uh, to talk about the Kavanaugh situation. I will bring that to you when it happens. At the top of the hour, Governor Brian Kemp is going to stop by. Uh, so stick around. Top of the hour, you can hear from Governor Kemp. He will join me live. Uh, right now, uh, Mike and Demarest, I want to go to you. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Hi there. It, just seemed, it seems like I get more and more confused every day here in America as to uh, the role of our government. What I'm getting at is the Supreme Court, I thought they were to rule on law and the Constitution, not public opinion. How, how does Robert change his view because of public opinion? Well, because you got to remember that John Roberts believes that he's got to keep the Supreme Court above the political fray. Uh, and in keeping the Supreme Court above the political fray, he believes that it is his job to steer the court away from the political fights and away from decisions that would drag the court into further political fights. So, for example, um, with the Obamacare fight, John Roberts made it possible for Republicans to strike down Obamacare by essentially saying the individual mandate was a tax and so the whole thing was legal. Uh, you get rid of the individual mandate, you can potentially undermine uh, Obamacare. But he himself would not do that, uh, essentially throwing it back to the um, uh, throwing it back to the Congress uh, or take the census decision where we now know that he himself uh, did get political. Uh, he changed his mind at the last minute, and essentially the way he restructured his decision was that, yes, presidents can ask the census question, but in this particular case, we don't like the way that the Secretary of Commerce answered questions in court, therefore it looks like he was lying, therefore even though it's legal to do, in this case, because he lied, we can't let him do it. And it's Roberts trying to be too clever by half, and that's the problem. Uh, it, it essentially, it is, um, it, it's working the refs is what's happening with the left. They're working the refs and they know John Roberts is the swing voter. They know he is persuaded by public opinion. And so they're trying to spook him on Roe versus Wade in particular, but there's something else here as well. That is significant. We need to understand. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has had another tumor removed from her pancreas after having a tumor removed from her lungs. Uh, pancreatic cancer very frequently spreads to the lungs. She previously had pancreatic cancer. There is a lot of speculation that though they removed the tumors, uh, there are problems. And there's a growing belief on the left that her health is exceedingly fragile so fragile, in fact, uh, that she may not be able to make it until 2021. Now, there's no evidence of this. You do need to understand there is no evidence of this. In fact, all of the evidence is to the contrary, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, in fact, a fighter, strong and in good shape, and has been able to come all these prior, overcome these prior surgeries and whatnot. But there are concerns on the left, uh, whispers in Washington, D.C., that not all is well there. So what they're trying to do is lay the groundwork for any presidential nominee to understand they are in for a savage, savage fight to dissuade people from engaging in that fight. There is a problem, though, and it is a significant problem, and it is a problem that helps the president. This president has shown repeatedly his willingness to fight for nominees. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people, and I'm one of them. 
my my increasing thinking of supporting the president in 2020 came during the Kavanaugh fight. Seeing what the left was doing to a good man destroyed him. He wasn't even my first, second, or third pick for the Supreme Court. I want Mike Lee and Amy Comey Barrett were, were far preferable to him and a few others. And yet he's a good man. He is conservative, not as conservative as I'd like. He's very much an institutionalist. But the president stood by him, and let's be honest, a lot of Republicans would not have stood by him but for the president standing by him. And that made me appreciate this president, his willingness to stand by people wrongly accused. And he absolutely was wrongly accused. And you see, conservatives who disagree on everything these days, they are united in their defense of Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, I can't think of another issue that has so fully united conservatives as the Brett Kavanaugh situation. And the president was able to draw a lot of people to him and a lot of support for him because of the Brett Kavanaugh situation. And the left may be doing this to uh, rough up the refs on the Supreme Court, but they're also uniting uh, conservatives in opposition to the left and uh, finding a lot of people to unite behind the president because of it. They're, they're playing with fire here. You know, I got to tell you, um, the, the, you remember the Washington Post brought back their old motto when Tr- Donald Trump was elected, democracy dies in the dark. Democracy may die in the dark, uh, but journalism is dying in newsrooms. And the New York Times proved it. Uh, they were their own worst enemy in this. There is no reason they should have run that story, uh, particularly when the reporters at the New York Times are the ones who wrote the book and wrote the excerpt. They should have had it, but they didn't uh, because they wanted the smear job. And I guarantee you, had Molly Hemingway from the Federalist not been out there so aggressively on this and caused a lot of even progressives to say, wait, what? This woman denied she had any memory of it? Uh, The New York Times would never have added that editor's note. They absolutely would not have. I want to move on to the Saudi Arabia situation. Keep in mind, we've got the governor at the top of the hour. Um, The Iranians are more likely than not behind the bombing in Saudi Arabia, of its oil refineries. Uh, oil futures in this country have skyrocketed 19% in an hour uh, in response to the situation. The United States will be better off than other countries because thanks to President George W. Bush, and George W. Bush deserves a lot of credit for this. George W. Bush um, caused the United States to grow its energy production in such a way through fracking and other means that we are a net energy exporter. Now, we export more oil as a country uh, for the first time since, uh, I think, the 60s than we import. So the United States has capacity to take off the world market to shore up um, the other side. It is, it's amazing to see George Bush's legacy on this front being so successful. And remember, Barack Obama and the Democrats tried their level best to oppose and obstruct it and roll it back. And they could on public lands, but Bush put in regulations that were so popular on private lands related to fracking that they couldn't. And then when Donald Trump came in, he rolled back a lot of the Obama regulations. And we've seen domestic energy production explode, both in terms of natural gas and oil. So much for peak oil from the 70s. It's a very big deal. And the result is we will be able to weather the storm in ways places like China, Japan, and parts of Europe will not. But this is asking for a response. And here's the thing everybody's got to understand. This is something that must be deterred. 
um, attacking the world energy supply has to be deterred. The Iranians are denying any involvement, but it is the Houthi rebels from Yemen that are taking credit for the attack. There are a couple of problems with their stories. Number one, there were 19 uh, facilities within the Aramco refinery in Saudi Arabia that were attacked. The Houthis only had 10 drones, and not all 10 of the drones made it. And based on the drones that fell, that, that malfunctioned, that couldn't get there, there's no way that the limited number of drones they have could have fired more than one shot each. So how were 19 uh, parts of this refinery exploded when you had 10 drones or less, when each of them only had a shot? Well, there's evidence that rockets or missiles were used as well. Well, where do those rockets or missiles come from? The only people with the capacity to be able to launch those sorts of things were the Iranians. So it's very clear that they were somehow involved. The president says he wants to get some really clear answers on this, but there's something else you got to remember. The Iranians have a history of trotting out their foreign minister for diplomatic negotiations while plotting terror attacks. It's very much like how al-Qaeda on internet forums, their chatter used to increase right before a terrorist attack. The Iranians always trot out their foreign minister on the world stage to sue for peace right before they do something like this. And yet again, this pattern has happened here. It is a dangerous, dangerous situation, and it's going to need a response. The Iranians must be deterred. Now, you can say the United States should not engage with this, but we're the only people who have the capacity to deter them, uh, and, but we should do it with a coalition. The Saudis, the Israelis, the United Arab Emirates, and the like need to deal with Iran. You know who else needs to deal with Iran? China. Their economy is undoubtedly going into recession and the Iranians just made it much more likely that their economy does go into recession. Join me at the top of the hour, Governor Brian Kemp, right now, Senator Chuck Grassley, who chaired the Judiciary Committee during the Kavanaugh hearings. He's on the floor of the Senate. Let's listen in. In another interview with Ramirez herself, the paper thought those unverified claims were son suddenly worth printing. No more corroboration. No more verification coming only days before the release of the author's book. I can't help but wonder if the timing had something to do with the decision to run the story. Maybe sell more books. They also laid out what commentators are now calling new allegations. Let me be clear, this is not an allegation. It's barely a third-hand rumor. These writers, can you believe this? These writers didn't even speak to the man who they claimed originally recounted this rumor. What's left are only layers and layers of decades-old hearsay. No more corroboration no more verification, not even anything from the accuser himself. And nothing, most importantly, nothing from the person who was allegedly involved. Now, the most shameful piece of this episode is that it took more than a full day after publication for the editors to intervene and to provide critical context. An editor's note added to the story last night reads, quote, 
The book reports that the female student declined to be interviewed and friends say that she does not recall the incident. Let me quote again. That's Senator Chuck Grassley. He's on the floor of the United States Senate right now, beating up the New York Times for its scurrilous report about Brett Kavanaugh. Um, This story is going to play out for a while longer. When we come back, Governor Brian Kemp is going to join me live on the radio. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Thank you very much for joining me now. Joining me by phone to discuss big and important issues. (laughs) Uh, He didn't know I was going to make him talk about the Notre Dame UGA game, but uh, Governor Brian Kemp joins me by phone. How are you? Hey, Eric. Good afternoon. So uh, so are you ready for Notre Dame to to invade Athens? Man, I'm ready for some football. I think it's going to be a great weekend in Athens. I know the Bulldog Nation is really excited to have our friends from Notre Dame come come down, and uh, they treated us very well a couple of years ago. I continue to hear about what a great trip that was for Georgia Bulldog fans, and I know that our folks will be just as gracious this year while we're taking care of business against the Irish. <laughs> All right. Now, that's not actually why you're here. I, I wanted to talk to you about this. I know the announcement was made the other day, and you went down to Swainsboro to talk about this. Uh, a, a rural strike force, essentially, of, of not creating a new government agency, but doing things to get government agencies in Georgia to work together to help uh, get jobs and economic development into rural Georgia. Yes, really. We're very excited about that. You know, there's a lot of folks and a lot of agencies, you know, chamber type groups and people that are just trying to really work hard to strengthen rural Georgia to create opportunities. You know, there's a lot of tough issues that we're facing down there. It's something I campaigned on. And, you know, I told people I was going to create the strike team and we're doing it by really doing a, a reorganization, if you will, in a, in a part of the part of economic development that will have the strength of the governor's office behind it. Uh, and it's going to do several different things. And, and really, this is coming about, Eric, because we looked and we said, look, where are the gaps? What do we need to do? What is nobody else working on? And one of the things is we do not have enough mega sites to market uh, projects of regional significance in our state. When you talk about a mega site, you're talking about 800 to 1200 contiguous acres and then you know a a good place to put that chunk or or, or have that land be in a good location where it's marketable uh, to some of these bigger projects that are looking in the southeast or even around the country to move a manufacturing facility or a research facility whatever it may be so we're lacking some of those sites so my thought was and the department's why not try to find some sites in, in different parts of our state there in rural Georgia that will create opportunities for, you know, four or five counties, maybe even more, uh, for folks to have a good job to create investment in that part of our state. And we've seen this work with, you know, like in Stan Springs down there with the Walton Newton County uh, partnership mm-hmm. uh, where you have the big Facebook data center going in and Takata and just uh, they've done some incredible things. So, we're going to help local communities that are interested in doing something like this, do the planning, get the site ready, which is what folks are looking for now is, is a project that you can do very quickly. 
Now, what is it? What does it take for the governor's office to work with some of these agencies? And some of them, like the Department of Labor, for example, having an, an elected statewide commissioner himself, not appointed by the governor. Uh, what does it take to, to reshuffle and reorganize those those entities to get get them working in ways they haven't worked in the past? Well, there's there's two other parts to the strike team. The the first one is in a, in conjunction with the mega site is also helping train the local economic developers so they know basically how to how to market a deal um how to you know put a deal on the table and get something done in conjunction with us so that's part of what we'll be doing and then the third part is creating a coordinator on the strike team to really work with these other agencies whether it's a constitutional office a state agency you know, a group like the the Carl Vinson Institute, the small business folks at the University of Georgia, ABAC, you know, has a rural prosperity group, you know, so all these different groups, there's chamber type groups as well. And we're not trying to take them over or tell anybody how to do their job or what to do. We're trying to figure out what everybody's doing and make sure that we're all pulling the plow, if you will, in the right direction and then see if there's any gaps that we're missing and I think just by us doing that, it'll make us more efficient and really start moving the needle in rural Georgia. Governor, one of the issues related to this, and, and I guess we could say traffic in, in the metro area somehow related, is when you go down to South Georgia, particularly in, in rural parts of the state now, uh, while I'm traveling around with this other radio show talking to people, one of the things that comes up oftentimes is the infrastructure issue as it relates to economic growth, particularly uh, how do you attract a, a big business down to South Georgia uh, when the only major air traffic in and out is you got to go into Atlanta or into Jacksonville. Uh, and then you've got the other infrastructure struggles as well down there. And I know GDOT continues to build these major four-lane roads throughout rural Georgia, getting people in and out of there. But I, I'm assuming infrastructure does have a, a, a big piece of this to try to attract people. Well, I think it's definitely part of that. And these sites will be, you know, you're not just going to pick a site that, that's not conducive to someone getting their products to market. But I think we have that. Uh, in all parts of Georgia. So I think we can find those sites that would, you know, meet the the test that these businesses may have to to do that. But what they really need, Eric, they need large sites, number one, but they also need a workforce. And I think that's what we're good at in Georgia. You know, we just got named the best state in the country for business from Area Development Magazine, and that's the consultants. And one of the things that they – Ranked us number one on was our workforce, our quick start training program. We're the best in the country at that. We continue and invest in that. And governors before myself have done that for many, many years. And I think it's a great strength for us. And there's hardworking people in rural Georgia. And there are a lot of those communities that simply want an opportunity. And, and they just need our help whether it's marketing, whether it's helping to get a site ready. And I'm not even talking about like moving dirt. I'm just talking about the engineering, the planning, and getting it ready to where you can pull a permit very quickly and, and put equipment on that site. That's what people are looking for in the business world today. A lot of the research is already done before they ever decide, you know, what state they want to go to or a potential number of locations in the state before you even know they're looking at you. So you got to have those sites for them to be able to look at and just even see if that makes a fit before they even contact you. So that that's something that's kind of changed in the economic development world and competing for these projects 
in in today's world and we have that we have the advantages to do that and we have the people uh to take these jobs and they're hard working and and you know we got to continue to make sure we're working on that and we will one last thing for you before you get out of here. I, I noticed the other day that in Oglethorpe County, they're now uh, broadband certified, rural Georgia, where broadband initiatives are taken over. And, and my understanding is that folks from the governor's office and others went in and helped them figure out ways to streamline and, and make themselves more business friendly when it comes to putting in broadband infrastructure without raising taxes and the government doing it um, to try to attract business over there. Well, I, I used to represent Oglethorpe County in the state Senate. I've, I've spent a lot of time growing up in Oglethorpe County. It's a, it's a big rural county. Uh, they're great folks down there, very proud of their efforts on that. And that's really what we're looking for. We need counties that are willing to, you know, let us know, look, we want to work with the strike team. We want to help find a mega site. We're willing to support that, even if it's not in our county you know, wholly, or if it's just a part, or even if we're a next door neighbor, because we know that a, a project of regional significance is going to help our citizens and will help our tax bases as well. And other counties have seen the benefits of that. So I certainly applaud Oglethorpe County and in their efforts on broadband, because we, we've seen, Eric, I mean, entrepreneurs can come from anywhere. They just got to have access to the infrastructure, you know, high-speed internet, good education system and good opportunities. And that's what we're working on all across this state, no matter what your zip code. Governor, thanks very much for stopping by on this and good luck to you on it. I, I appreciate the thought the office is putting in on getting this done. No, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Governor Brian Kemp, uh, who I'm sure will be in Athens cheering on the dogs versus, you know, I, I, I want to talk about this game. When we believe it or not, I realize we're not a sports show. Do want to talk about that? But uh, just you know, the the closing thought that the governor had uh, on a lot of counties sometimes they've got to do things for regional development. Recognize that the actual site of a location of a business development may not be in their county, but will benefit them regionally. When I was on the city council in Macon, uh, we had Middle Georgia Regional Airport, and I was always stunned by the number of our city council, this was an airport that Macon owned. This tells you everything you need to know about Macon and Bibb County. Uh, it was an airport run by that city in that county. And the city council at the time would not invest in the airport infrastructure because members of the council said, well, those people are going to live in Houston County because the airport's on the south end of Bibb County next to Houston County. They didn't want to invest in the infrastructure at their own airport that they owned because the workforce would more likely than not live in Houston County, which was insane. Thankfully, they got rid of the city and consolidated into the county and led the development authority to do it. But there's a lot of that thinking in the state that needs to be overcome. And to the extent the governor's office is helping uh, counties realize, you know, you may not get the you may not get the site, but you'll get some of the people living in your county boosting your tax revenue. God bless them for doing it. What actually makes a better toothbrush? Is it the industrial strength power or the claims of miracle trendy ingredients, the multiple modes? If you ask your dentist, they'll tell you it's less about the brush, more about how you use it. And that's why you need Quip. Quip is the remarkably simple electric toothbrush created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health. 
Healthier habits. Most of us don't brush for a full two minutes. That's what dentists recommend. And Quip makes it easy because the toothbrush vibrates for two minutes with great sonic pulses. And every 30 seconds, it pulses to ensure that you rotate it in your mouth to get an even clean. And you know, 75% of us use old, worn-out bristles. They're ineffective. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. The sleek, intuitive design, it's simple to use. It comes with a travel cap, doubles, doubles as a mirror mount. It's a great toothbrush. You can ditch the gimmicks, get a Quip. I've been using mine now for about two years, and they're fantastic. They start at just $25. You'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash Erickson. That is a simple way to support the show, and you get a better toothbrushing experience. You go to getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Erickson. You get your first refill free. Go right now to getquip, Q-U-I-P dot com slash Erickson. Hello there. Just so you know, we didn't have a winner for the 95.5 WSB free gas giveaway. That means you'll have a chance to win $800 tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. on 95.5 WSB. Listen at 8 during Atlanta's morning news. If you're not registered for free gas, go to WSBradio.com and register. $800 in the morning, folks. $800. Tune into Scott Slade in the morning. Now, I, I want to mention this uh, just briefly. So why is the Georgia Notre Dame, Notre Dame game such a big deal? I actually had to go find it out myself. I, nobody explained it. I Googled. Um, by the way, you should know that College Game Day is going to be in Athens this Saturday. Uh, they announced it. College Game Day will be in Athens. Why? Because this is the biggest game uh, that is outside of um, that, that's outside of well, it, it's two two teams that were in college playoffs coming together, and they're not in the same division. You got Georgia's in the SEC. What I don't even know what Notre Dame is in. Who cares? It's Notre Dame. Notre Dame is in a league of its own, I suppose, because <laughs> it's Notre Dame. They had Rudy. I, I mean, this is why people like Notre Dame. You do realize this. You're either Catholic or you like Rudy. That's that's why you like Notre Dame. But college game day. They were there in Athens in 2013. They're coming back for the Georgia-Notre Dame game, uh, which will be the biggest game of the year, according to people at ESPN, which I don't know why, because you'd think they'd say Alabama was. But hey, it's UGA. We'll take it as opposed to eh, Notre Dame. Eh, not a big fan. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson. Uh, okay, I, I've got to play. Hang on. Let me align the soundboard so you'll be able to hear this. Uh, <laughs> this is an actual reporter in California on KTLA. Just listen to this. We tried to reach out to the man who died in this pursuit. Uh, they were unavailable for comment. Micah, back to you. We tried to reach out to the man who died in this pursuit. Uh, they were unavailable for comment. <laughs> she, you're not, you're not mishearing that. We tried to reach out to the man who was killed in this pursuit. He was unavailable for... Did they go to someone to do a seance or did they hire a Ouija board? We don't know, but they they tried to reach out to this man and he was unavailable for comment. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Okay, um, a slight detour, and this is somewhat of a personal note here. I interviewed uh, yesterday Grover Sassman. 
Grover Sassman is 98 years old. Uh, Grover Sassman uh, was uh, went into he was a Marine and he one of the things that he did, he worked on. He was a sergeant in the Marines and he worked on Corsairs, uh, the 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 fighter plane typically used in the Pacific theater in World War II. One of the most amazing things about interviewing him is is they flew a Corsair in uh, to Macon. And it, it was the, um, I forget the, the name of the air group that flew it in. They're out of Peachtree City. And they flew the Corsair down to Macon for him. He, he actually, uh, Mr. Grover, put together in World War II, put together a, a, a the rear of a one Corsair and the front of another Corsair, uh, put them together because both planes were damaged, the back of one and the front of the other, um, worked on it on his own time at night, uh, to get it back up, uh, and he said he knew that he had to do it because otherwise they were just gonna the the navy would shove it off the ship, shove both planes off the ship. But he could he knew he could salvage it, and he did. Um, so MacArthur summons him, and MacArthur essentially tells him and and his his platoon that their uh, shore leave in Australia is canceled. They got to go into the Philippines and get it ready for him. So he goes in, and I asked him a little bit about that in the experience, and I just want you to hear some of this. We don't hear these stories enough. And then again, he's 98 years old. He's also, he's the oldest Harley dealer in the country. He was a Harley Davidson dealer before World War II at 18. Left to go into World War II, came home and picked right back up. Uh, Arthur Davidson, who was the founder of Harley Davidson, was a friend of his, uh, and he wound up in Macon, Georgia. He's the oldest still-operating Harley dealer in the country. Listen to this one experience. This, again, uh, he's he's in the Philippines. He's gone in ahead of MacArthur, uh, nine days ahead of MacArthur, and this happens. Nine days before they actually invaded, we slept on banana peels, we slept any way we could, and it, you could tell a difference in the Jap engine by the way the engine sound. Instead of having a regular buzz like that, they had mmm, mmm, mmm. So you could all, we called them wash machine Charlie's. And we could tell when they were coming over. And one night we had an earthquake, a shelling, and the eruption of the volcano all at the same time. Yeah. One night they had an earthquake, a volcanic eruption, and the Japanese shelling their positions on the island. And they maintained their positions. He said they had to dig their trenches deep enough to sleep at night so that if the Japanese strafed over their positions, they wouldn't be able to hit them. But the soil was volcanic, and the snakes could burrow deep. And he said you would you would dig down and get into cobra nests. So you had to be a good shot. You kept your forty-five on you at all time. Um, and they, they did this to help get the Philippines ready for MacArthur's invasion. Just a fascinating story. We're losing so many of those World War II veterans. It was a real honor to be able to get to speak to him yesterday. In Macon. Okay, now we got to get into other news of the day here. Uh, there actually is a lot of other news out there. Um, one of the things that we need to talk about is Beto O'Rourke. Uh, just briefly, uh, maybe we'll have time when we come back from the break for Corn Pop. Um, corn Pop is not as important uh, as, as the Beto situation. Beto O'Rourke went on Meet the Press 
And he was confronted by Chuck Todd about the constitutionality of gun confiscations. And he had this to say. I'll put it this way. This is something that we're able to do through the Commerce Clause. And this is something that is not prevented uh, from the United States, wouldn't prevent the United States from doing by the Second Amendment. So this is constitutionally sound. This is absolutely necessary if we care about the lives of our fellow Americans. And here's something I want to tell you. Going to a gun show in Conway, Arkansas, stopping at a Bucky's in Katy, Texas yesterday, listening to owners of AR-15s, Republicans, who come up to me and say, you know what, um, I own one of these guns, don't need it to hunt, don't need it for self-defense, this is the right thing to do, I would gladly give it up because I also have kids who are in school, and I fear for their safety, or I have grandkids. No, we can just stop here. So, so let, me, let me just point this out. If Beto O'Rourke believes that law-abiding citizens would comply with the law and hand in their guns, why do we need gun confiscation? Because won't the same law-abiding citizens who would comply with that law also comply with the law that uh, don't use your gun to kill people? Well, why do we need gun confiscations if that's the case? Uh, we, we shouldn't need gun confiscations if, if that's the logic. But there's something else. We know that the story is so Beto O'Rourke essentially recounts he's, he's standing at a urinal at a Bucky's, which is a uh, basically the, the Texas version of Quick Trip, but apparently amazingly awesome. And um, he, he says he's standing there, using the bathroom. Some guy comes up to him, starts talking to him about willing to, to hand in his AR-15. He's a Republican. He doesn't need it. He doesn't hunt with it. He doesn't use it for sport. He, he doesn't need an AR-15. We know that this is a made-up story, largely because Beto O'Rourke said he was standing at the urinal when he really strikes me as someone who squats to pee. Okay, do I have time for this? Yes, if I hit play, I've, well, you just, yeah, you need to hear about Corn Pop. You really do. I learned a lot. And I learned that uh, it makes a difference. This was the diving board area, and I was one of the guards, and there were a lot of, it was a three-meter board. And you fell off sideways, you landed on the damp, uh, the darn cement over there. And Corn Pop was a bad dude. And he ran a bunch of bad boys. And I did, and back in those days, to show how things have changed, one of the things you had to use, if you used pomade in your hair, you had to wear a bathing cap. And so he was up on the board, wouldn't listen to me. I said, hey, Esther, you, off the board, or I'll come up and drag you off. Well, he came off, and he said, I'll meet you outside. My car, this was mostly, these were all public housing behind it. My car, there was a gate out here. I parked my car outside the gate. And I, he said, I'll be waiting for you. He was waiting for three guys in straight razors. Not a joke. There's a guy named Bill Wright, Mouse, the only white guy, and he did all the pools. He was the mechanic. And I said, what am I going to do? He said, come down here in the basement where mechanics, where, where, where all the pool f f filter is. You know, the chain, there used to be a chain that went across the deep end. And he cut off a six-foot length of chain. He folded up. He said, you walk out with that chain. And you walk to the car and say, you may cut me, man, but I'm going to wrap this chain around your head. I said, you kidding me. He said, no, if you don't, don't come back. And he was right. So I walked out with the chain. And I walked up to my car. And they had, in those days, you used to remember the straight race. You had <laughs> it went on from there. Joe Biden and the adventures of Corn Pop. The Babylon Bee running a story. He's received the coveted uh, front of the Corn Pops uh, box from Kellogg's this afternoon as a result of this story. Oh, you just got to love Joe Biden. My goodness. I'll talk to you all tomorrow.